Good evening, everybody. Welcome to Good Friday. I am, uh, I am so delighted that you guys have chosen to make it here tonight. I don't know if you're like me, but it feels like at the end of this week, it was spring break for us, it feels like I'm sort of sliding under the tag into home to make it here tonight. Anybody else feel like that? Like, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta beat the tag to make it here tonight. Anybody else feel like that? Is it just me? Um, <laughs> we built this worship service um, to have a little worship time on the front end to help us kind of shake off the cobwebs of the week. So if you would please um, just prepare your heart. Um, Good Friday is a special night. It's a night where we take a moment and acknowledge that our Lord was killed for us, for you and for me. Uh, That's a profound thing. It's hard to get through. And we're going to do some storytelling tonight. We are going to honor our Lord Jesus. And I'd love to start by asking you to stand up and join with us. We are going to sing together. One, two, three, and...
Jesus, how we needed you, how desperately we needed you. After hundreds of years of darkness, your people crying out, you showed up as a baby. You led the way throughout your life. You were God with us. You walked among us. You taught us. You healed us. You showed us a new way. You showed us heaven on earth. You made the way, Lord. You were with us. You heard our cry. Be with us tonight, God. Send your spirit to this place. We confess again our need for you, our spiritual blindness, our own darkness. We reach out to you, acknowledging you as Emmanuel, God with us. We sing to you now.
he was here. And he lived and he split history in half. And on that Friday, you and I and every human being who's ever lived participated in the crucifixion. And he loved us through it. We're going to worship him now in his love and his sacrifice. Take a seat for a moment. We're going to just take a second here to just consider why Good Friday was necessary. Why was Good Friday necessary? Why we're still gathered here to talk about it many years later? You see, man was designed and created to be in relationship with our God. 
That's, that's the initial plan. That was the plan for us to be in relationship with our God and to, which is pretty cool, rule over and reign over this earth. Pretty awesome design that God came up with a relationship with him. But one simple part is we'd be under God's sovereign rule as we reigned over this earth. Pre-fall, pre-all the bottles, all the oil spills, all that. We were reigning over the earth designed for it. But then, you guys know the story, we were given a choice whether or not we would submit to that sovereign rule, whether or not we would acknowledge that God was going to be the one that determined right and wrong. You see, God, though, wasn't an oppressive leader. He wasn't a micromanager. Really, he came up with how many rules? One. One simple rule. You remember it from Genesis 1.17. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You're familiar with that. And really, that was the choice that man was left with in his free will, choosing whether or not to partake. You know how the story goes. He did choose to partake. After being tempted by Satan, you remember the story in the garden, both Eve and Adam. There's some debate over whose fault it was. But uh, they chose to do what? They chose to partake, right? (laughs) Chose to partake of the forbidden fruit. Probably not an apple. We don't know for sure. They chose that, and that set into motion what God warned them about from the very beginning, that death would come. Death equals separation. Separation, now it's hard to talk with this in my mouth. separation between God and man that still from that moment on till today infects the majority of our planet. That separation that we tend to play the blame game for to say, well, is they, they did that. How's that relate to me? But if we're honest with ourselves and what we're trying to move towards this evening is taking a little bit of personal ownership of this, that we not only partook of the forbidden fruit, we partake of the forbidden fruit. Anytime, anytime we go outside the boundaries of God's plan and his design for our life, we're literally partaking of the forbidden fruit. This evening, we're going to have a chance to reflect on that. It's something that none of us can sneak by. It's talked about in the Old Testament and New Testament. Isaiah 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're familiar with that truth. We're going to let that sink in this evening. We're going to have a chance to hear three unique stories from different men and a lady that actually interacted with Jesus while he was here on earth and put ourselves in their shoes, walked down the road with them and experienced what they experienced when they first partook from the fruit. So I encourage you to just hang on to this during this time. You'll give some, get some direction uh, a little bit later. My son's three-fourths done with the apple already. <laughs> but we'll have a chance to reflect on this universal problem of partaking of the forbidden fruit.
My story. My story is sometimes seen as a testament to faith. And the truth, I'm afraid, is that I didn't come to him for help because I believed. 
I came to him because I was desperate. It, it started with a cough, just a little cough. Nothing some frankincense oil couldn't cure. But before long, it took root in her chest, and it wouldn't let go. My little girl, my precious daughter, was dying. The, the, the best doctors in all of Galilee could do nothing for her. I was beside myself, watching helplessly as she slipped away. Oh, in, in those days, everyone was talking about a carpenter from Nazareth, about the miraculous healings he performed. And so I went and threw myself at his feet, begged him to come to my home and lay hands on her so that she might be well and live. He agreed to come. For the first time in days, I had hope. My home wasn't far, but there were so many crowded around us. We could barely move. Leave him be, I wanted to shout. My daughter is dying. Soon it will be too late. And so it was. Word came that in my absence, my sweet little girl breathed her last. There was no need for the teacher to continue on. I failed her. And now she was gone forever. Fear not, he said. Only believe. Numb with grief, I, I followed him to my home, into the room where my daughter's limbless body lay. I, I don't know what I thought he was going to do, say a prayer over her, uh, anoint her body for burial. But instead, he took her by the hand and said, Talitha Kumi, little girl, I say to you, arise. And she did. As if she were merely waking from sleep, happy to greet another day. Looking back on it, knowing what I know now, I, I should have dropped everything then and there and followed him. But, but I was an important man, you see. I was Jarus a ruler of the synagogue, a keeper of the law. Which is why, of course, I was in Jerusalem for the Passover. Why I was there on that terrible day. Abba, you have to do something, she said. They're going to crucify him. And so I went. How could I not? He'd given her back to me the most treasured thing in my life. And now, now, I would stand up for him. Be a voice of reason. Surely they would listen to me, a learned man, righteous before the law. I know, I know. You're thinking, there's, there's nothing anyone could have done to prevent that. He had to die on that cross. It was his plan for our redemption after all. But, 
But that doesn't absolve me any more than it absolved that son of a jackal who betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. God gave us freedom after all, even if he himself knows every path we'll trod before we take our first step. I, I realize it's not easy for you to understand this, but it will be when you're on the other side. The point is, the point is that he knew, even as he spoke life back into my daughter's limbs, what I would do when that day came that they were chanting for his blood. He knew that fear would steal my tongue. He knew that I would turn away and slip into the crowd. But even still, he saved her. He did everything for me. And I, I did nothing for him. I'll never forget the sound of the stones dropping from their hands into the sand. I kept thinking this next one. This next one will be for me. Soon enough, someone will call his bluff, the rest will follow, and I'll be dead. But the stones kept dropping, one after the other until none were left. And finally, I dared to open my eyes. Go, he said, and sin no more. Now, I can't say that I never sinned again, <laughs> but I can say that my life was never the same. I knew I had to leave Jerusalem. There was no place for me there anymore. My husband wouldn't have me back. My parents disowned me. I had to go. At nightfall, I left for Caesarea, the roads weren't safe for a woman traveling alone, so I fell in behind a caravan of silk merchants. It was a long and tiring trip. Plenty of time for me to think about everything that had happened. And honestly, the why of my sin is the least interesting part of my story. Don't we all have the same reasons we sin? Maybe we're hurt or lonely or prideful. In my case, it was all three. But I'm not here to make excuses. I was given a second chance, and I took it. Caesarea turned out to be just the place for me to start over. No one knew me there, and I found work in the mills. First, in the coloring vats. My hands stayed tinted blue until the day I died, and then in the looms. One day, I was with some of the other women who worked there, eating lunch in the shade of an olive grove by the drying racks. One of them had just come from Jerusalem. She was talking about a certain Galilean teacher that the Romans had crucified. 
how his followers were telling everyone who'd listen that he'd risen from the grave, that they'd found his tomb empty. Sure it was, one of the others scoffed, because they stole his body. I don't know how I knew that the man she was talking about was the man who saved my life. I just did. And I don't know how I knew that what his disciples were saying was true. I just did. I'd seen him in the flesh. I'd looked him in the eyes. I'd witnessed his power. Let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone. Those are the words he said that saved my life. I didn't know it then, but there was one person there who had every right to cast that stone. One person there who was truly without sin. He could have condemned me. Instead, he took my place up there on that cross. It was my sin that put him there.
So I'm just going to come out and say this. All right. She didn't want to say it, and he didn't want to say it, but I'm going to say it. Nobody warned us that we were going to end up as Bible characters. <laughs> right? So, no, it's true. So, I mean, you're lucky that the Bible isn't still being written today. I mean, can you imagine being a young person, and there you are working at a Chick-fil-A, and then one day Jesus comes to your drive-thru, and instead of ordering lunch, he tells you, stop what you're doing and follow me, and you do. And then you find out like 2,000 years later, there's churches on Jupiter that are reading about what you did. <laughs> I'm just saying, a little warning would have been nice. <laughs> we didn't have drive throughs we had fishing. In fact, my brother and I, we were on our way fishing when we first met him. And he told us to stop what we're doing and to follow him. And he was going to make us fishers of men. And we had no idea what that meant. But hey, he was a rabbi, so we did it anyway. You know, people used to ask me, why'd you do it? And it kills me, like, seriously? Haven't you met him? Haven't you seen the things he's done? Haven't you heard his teachings? It's miraculous. He even asked us one time, he said, who do you think I am? And all my friends kind of came up with these bogus, intelligent, non-answers. And I finally got so frustrated, I said, um, you're, the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh -oh. <laughs> well, he really liked that answer. He, um, he said I was a rock. He said he was going to build his church on me and that the gates of hell would never prevail against it, which was kind of cool to hear. <laughs> So uh, I went into that night brimming with confidence. Uh, it had been quite a week, after all. There was the big entrance to the city. And then he just went ballistic and literally started throwing all these greedy crooks out of the temple, which was really cool to watch. <laughs> and then he predicted the destruction of the temple. and That was less cool. But it, it seemed like seemed like things were finally coming into focus. I mean, we were in Jerusalem with the Messiah on Passover. Something was happening. You know, later that night, I, I, he knew they were plotting against him. He knew Judas was ready to set it all in motion. He knew he needed to teach us how to remember him and how to love one another. He was dialed in two steps ahead of everyone. I remember uh, later in the garden, he was dead certain that we were all going to turn against him before, before it was all over. And of course, I said, no, man, not me. I'm Peter, the rock. We walked on water together, man. I mean, yeah, yeah, no? Okay. When they finally came for him, I was, I was so sure this was my big moment. You know, it'd be kind of funny if it weren't so sad. As if, <laughs> this is my opportunity to, to, to prove that the Son of God is wrong, that I'm right. I know. <laughs> I'll use violence. 
I did manage to get one good shot in before Jesus shut it down. You know, he fixed the guy's head. And then he was taken by the crowd. I, you know, I, I, still, I still wanted him to say, thank you for defending me, Peter. You're the only one who truly loves me, Peter. I still wanted it to be about me. You know, one more attaboy Pete from the Lamb of God. So, you know the drill. I said I didn't know him three times. You know, it, it happened, it unraveled so quickly, I honestly can't tell you if it was because, because I was afraid or because I was hurt. He just said I'd do it, and I did it exactly the way he said I'd do it. <laughs> Stupid rooster. It took myself years to get settled back down. Even after he died and rose and forgave me and ascended into heaven. Which was awesome. Oh, awesome. Even after I spent decades, you know, collectively we spent decades building the church and witnessing the, witnessing the Holy Spirit arrive and working through the nations, I still struggled with my pride. And a big mouth. And more pride. But he was faithful. And my brothers and sisters bore with me. And the church grew in grace and authority. And the gates of hell still have not prevailed against it. So, yeah. That night I, um, I said I didn't know him. I couldn't stop him from knowing me. Some powerful portrayals here this evening by some excellent actors and grateful for that. And if you haven't caught on, the whole idea of our time together is to move from general to specific. From general to specific, it's real easy to go into the, the vague, yes, God, he came down and he died for the sins of the world. Because we look around and we see all the craziness around us. That's, that's easy to acknowledge. The hard part is personalizing it. And if you think about it, the power of the cross comes when we personalize it. Jesus died for my sin. Jesus took my rebellion. He hung on the cross because of my choice to willfully reject him, to reject his leadership, to think crazily, even as was pointed to, that I know better. Are you kidding me? So this evening, the hope is, is that we personalize this, that it's not a vague Good Friday that's for the big picture world, but it's for my sin, it's for your sin, it's for the stupid remark we made earlier today to our spouse, so the choice that we made a half an hour before arriving here. This is what we're talking about when we think about sin, putting him on the cross. That's what we're moving to. That's the apple that you're dealing with, representing our choice, our willful choice to rebel. 
Now you've been waiting, you've been wondering, what do I do with this apple? Some of you have awkwardly just held on to it the whole time. Some of you kind of set it and it's kind of stuffed somewhere behind your rump. Some, some of you have, like my son, partook. In fact, even after I gave him a hard time, he was sneaking bites the remainder of the service. Perfect. Perfect. But here, here's the thing. So we want to give a few moments of time where you go before God and deal with your own sin. To acknowledge it, maybe even for the first time tonight, that would be a great start. Some of us, though, are veteran sinners, and you just need some time to confess and to come clean before Almighty God. But wherever you're at, my encouragement is in these moments of quiet just to reflect. And here's the action piece. You saw us in an acknowledgement of our participation in sin, taking a bite, placing it in this cross, After you've had a chance of reflection, after you've had a chance of confession, my invitation is for you to do the same if you feel comfortable. I'd love if it's not a mad rush up here. We we don't have space for that. But if you could slowly and quietly take time, a single bite, and place it in the cross, and then quietly back to your seat. We're just going to open up the time just between you and God, the gift of time. We run so hard, so fast, just to take time to reflect, remember, why our Savior was placed on that cross. I'll turn you loose now to some quiet time.
Let us off the hook. Talk about the risen Savior, the forgiveness of sin. But I also think it's important for us to linger a bit, remembering the cross. It's a pretty powerful image just seeing this up here. I mean, just in this group, there's a lot of sin. Imagine the billions of people on our planet, generations of billions of people on this planet. And he bore the sin of it all. We can't move towards the celebration of the rescue before we take time to remember the cross. There's no way to get to that without one without the other. So my invite for you just as you're walking out tonight is just, just stay a little bit more quiet this evening. We'll have plenty of time to celebrate on Sunday. Let me pray as I dismiss you. God, I thank you so much for this opportunity to be in your house, to reflect a bit on the extreme sacrifice that was made on our behalf, not just for the sins of the world, but for my sins, my intentional choices, my accidental choices, all of the choices of wearing the God hat independent of you. Thank you for bearing the weight of that on a miserable Roman cross, tortured on my behalf because of my sin. I personalize it here tonight. God, we celebrate you on this Good Friday for that amazing choice you made. I pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.